Habitats and Horticulture update. I'm Melissa Seafelt. I'm the host based in Marquette County. To get started this morning, I think we'd like to start off with our roll call check-in on who's online and if we want to start in the Northwest region. And if you want to give an update at the same time, we'll kind of do two birds with one stone. Anybody on in the Northwest region yet? Okay. If not, let's move on. Let's try the North Central region. How about East Metro? This is Kim in Winnebago. I am here. <laughs> I was wondering if that was the only one oh. on besides Brian. Oh, no. Well, most important update here is I am looking out my window, and it is finally raining. We haven't had rain in probably four-plus weeks. I know some rain moved through just a small portion of the county last Sunday, but for the most part, the entire area, including the Fox Valley, was missed. So this is some very welcome rain. For calls coming in, lots of plant IDs and a lot of what's wrong with my trees still. Some of it's newly planted trees, some of it's established trees. A little bit of blossom end rot calls and just some miscellaneous other things coming in. But that's about it. This is Ann from Outagamie County, and I don't have a whole lot to report. I think things have slowed down quite a bit. And there's nothing really of importance or interest, I'm sorry to add. Others from East Metro. Hi, this is Patty down in Racine County. I was just reviewing the summary sheets from our plant health advisors on the horticulture helpline to see what they've been dealing with the last couple of weeks because I've been out of the office. And it looks like it's all over the board, but a significant number of calls on emerald ash borer and protecting ash trees in addition to Japanese beetles, magnolia scale, which we heard from PJ yesterday that magnolia scale is amazingly bad this year, and every magnolia I have seen has been thoroughly infested with it and making a big sticky mess. Apple tree issues with split trunks and bark and all sorts of just miscellaneous things about plant ID and mulch questions and things along those lines, so it's pretty much all over the board. Thanks. Others in East Metro. Uh, this is Sharon in Milwaukee, and we don't have anything to add to that. We also have magnolia scale pretty badly. I've heard from quite a few people. Japanese beetle has not been real bad this year. Some people who have never had it before have it this year, but those who have had it and are kind of used to it say that it doesn't seem to be as severe as it was in previous years. They're definitely still out there right now. And other than that, we aren't having issues too much yet with the drought, but we are having very dry conditions. We're supposed to get some rain today, and I think if this keeps going, we are going to start having some real problems. The lawns are just starting to turn brown, and normally by now they would have been brown for weeks since the middle of July. I've also noticed that crab apples have very little apple scab this year. It's really quite a good year. The crab apple tree is a bad year for the scab. So other than that, not much to report. Thank you. Any others from East Metro, or we'll move on to another region. This is Barb in Kenosha. Sorry, I've been in and out, but I would say similar to, it sounds like, what have already been shared. We've gotten several calls about worms and raspberries, and most of the time it sounds like the bothered-wing drosophila, but we haven't had a confirmation on that yet. Certainly the emerald ash borer, ash trees failing, dying, has also been very common, and also, especially now that it's been so dry, a lot of woody plants, a lot of dieback in them, 
probably is follow-up of long-term environmental issues and cold damage. Okay, thank you. Last call for East Metro. Okay, let's move on to the Southwest region. Well, this is Christy from Walworth County, so just kind of a little bit there from Patty and Barb and Sharon. I've been noticing a lot of monarchs around here and a lot of butterflies in flight, so that's been good. I had a call from some skunk damage in a lawn, and other than that, not too much beyond what they had said already, but we are noticing, and I'm sure others are noticing too, is just some of the maple leaf diseases coming on pretty heavy right now. Tar spot I'm noticing, and, and frachnose. And I think I'm also noticing some browning, maybe because of the dry weather, and that's about it here in Walworth County. Others from the southwest region. Okay. Let's try the northwest region again. Maybe we got a couple people uh, hopping on that we didn't catch. This is Kevin up in Spooner for Burnett, Washburn, and Sawyer counties. I suppose we're almost the polar opposite of what's going on in the far southeast. We've had just a hair over two inches of rain last night, and there's forecasts for more to come in the next couple of days. So we are not at all dry. I don't want to say we're excess moisture, but... Lots of lush vegetation, mostly diseases coming in as a result. We've had some foggy mornings here of late, and all that dew has really been perfect for our diseases. So usual anthracnose, woody ornamentals, and tomato blights, normal kinds of stuff when it comes to fungal diseases. We are still getting calls on apple tree decline and just tree issues. Some of it is Fungal-related, some is weather, we're assuming, but still a lot of apple trees that are suffering, I'm assuming, from that cold winter two years ago. We had somebody call with a bee swarm, so the bees must be doing good, and I've heard that from several of our beekeepers, that it's been a good year. Comments on the butterfly earlier, we too are seeing a little bit more than we've had in the past. Maybe it's because we've got this big flush of wildflowers right now with all the moisture we've had. Yeah, other than that, just the miscellaneous stuff that goes along with normal summertime activities. But we're not suffering any kind of drought or water issues at the moment. So have to send some your way down south. Hopefully you get some. That's it. All right, thank you. Others in the northwest region. Okay, let's try north central again. Is there anybody else on from north central? This is Walt in Portage County. I've had a couple calls this week on scale in maples and oak trees, and I've got considerable amount of scale in my oaks at home as well. Numerous dry trees again, the trees that are probably due to the environmental issues over the last number of years. It's been pretty dry as far as rain goes here in Portage County. We did have a half an inch of rain last Sunday from a storm that went through, and it's raining very nicely right now, so we hope that's going to help. I noticed, too, with what has been said, we have extra monarchs this year, too. Many more are being seen, at least in my yard, than in past years. So that's about where we are right now. All right, thank you. Others from the North Central region. I'll hop in here since I haven't heard anybody else speak up. This week in Marquette County, we did have emerald ash borer confirmed for the first time, so we'll be dealing with that. And we kind of knew that was coming because we've been surrounded since last fall for other counties that have had uh, emerald ash borer pop up, so we knew it was coming. It was just a matter of when. We are also right now getting some much-needed rain. We've been dry for several weeks, so hopefully we get quite a bit of rain to get that soil back to being a little bit more saturated with water. It's been, like I said, really dry here on the sandy soils in Marquette County. Anybody else from the north-central region join us? 
Okay, I think we can move on to specialist reports then. In the clinic this week, fairly busy week, a lot of leaf diseases coming in on woody ornamentals. I did have some apple scabs that came in from Dane County, and I have seen a fair amount of that around, although it's not severe enough to cause a lot of complete defoliation of trees. And then on horse chestnut, a disease that we started to see around this time last year, Guinardia blotch, it causes large necrotic areas, oftentimes vein delimited on horse chestnut trees, and had a sample of that come in from Milwaukee County. Also, an ironwood tree that had some septoria leaf spot. I'd never seen that disease on that particular host before, but that didn't surprise me. Septoria is pretty much everywhere. There are different species that can attack pretty much anything. Fair number of vascular wilts, verticillium wilt on both Japanese tree lilac and also on a three-flowered maple tree that was submitted from Dane County. Oak wilt on a variety of different types of oak. And then a continuation of our canker diseases, necria canker on maple, and then very bizarre canker organism that's very opportunistic called steganosporium. I think if any of you ever receive a sample of this in your offices, you'll probably remember it. It tends to produce this copious amounts of very dark-colored spores that kind of ooze out onto the branch surface in little clusters. And if somebody brings the sample in in a plastic bag, the interior of the bag will be coated with these spores. That one is one, again, that tends to be a problem on trees that are under stress. It's not a great pathogen on its own, but certainly will cause damage and get a foothold in stressed trees. Also saw some pear scab on a pear sample that came in from Douglas County this week. And amongst herbaceous ornamentals, any of you who have folks who grow bishop's weed, I've seen a lot of septoria leaf spot on that particular host. If the leaves are turning brown, that's probably what you're dealing with. And then I've had a hospice sample, this time from Brown County. I had another one earlier from elsewhere in the state that had obvious viral symptoms, but tested negative for Hausta virus X and also tested negative for other virus tests that we can do here in the clinic. And I'm very, very suspicious that both of those samples were suffering from tobacco rattle virus. I have seen that virus reported on hospice. And then on conifers, diplodia, both on Austrian pine, which is not that unusual, but then also on spruce, and I had a Norway spruce that came in from Waukesha County where all of the branch tips in the sample were wilted and drooped over. And when I looked at that under the microscope, it was just mass after mass of fruiting bodies of diplodia in those shoots. And it was apparently causing a lot of shoot dieback. And then other things in terms of vegetables, blossom end rod on a squash sample, and a lot of septoria leaf spot on tomatoes. Then a very interesting tomato that came in where there was an area on the side of the tomato that was ruptured. It was intact. It wasn't rotting or anything, and it looked like a normal fruit surface, but there was a pit or a crater in the side with this line that went from the top of the fruit through this sunken area all the way to the bottom. This is a phenomenon called zippering. And the reason it's called zippering is if you look at that little line very carefully, it looks like a zipper. So you'll see that vertical line and then little cross hatching as you look up and down that line. That's a physiological problem that occurs on tomatoes on occasion. It can be weather-related. So that's it for me for today. Any questions from anyone? Brian, did you get my uh, Yes, Yes, sample? your broccoli sample. I do think that looks a lot like crown gall. The problem is that in my references, there's no reference to crown gall on brassicas, although if you look at the scientific literature on genetic modification of plants, Agrobacterium, the causal bacterium, is used to transform brassicas, so introduce new genes into that host. So technically, it could be 
uh, host for Crown Gall. I'm kind of waiting for Amanda Gevins to get back from a meeting for her to take a look at it so we can come to a consensus. When I emailed her about it, she had the same comments that she'd never seen Crown Gall on a brassica, but again, there's a lot of literature on transformation of those types of plants that would indicate that you could get Crown Gall on those particular vegetables. So, I think that's probably what you're dealing with, but again, we'll hold off for a final decision until I can consult with Amanda. Well, that's particularly interesting since that's one of the new All-American selections, too. Okay. Yeah, that is kind of interesting as well. Yeah. But, of course, a lot of times the All-American selections are not selected for disease resistance, and they're selected for other horticultural characteristics rather than disease. Right. Well, and then I wondered if they do use that bacterium in order to modify them genetically, what else is going on? Right. Could that have been part of it? Yeah, yeah. just be interesting. Thanks. Do you know if that particular variety was genetically engineered? I have no idea, but I did give you the name of it on Yeah, that. I'll double check and check the variety and see if I can find anything about how that's been bred. Yeah, I don't really know anything about okay, it. Okay, sounds good. The other is, did you by any chance get a hepacodium sample with possible vert from here? No, but I had talked to Patty yesterday about getting another sample from her tree for us to retest. I haven't seen that yet. Okay. I've been in email contact with this guy, and I don't know if he's going to send one or not, but okay. I encouraged him to. Any other questions? Brian, while I'm thinking of it, what's a good way to deal with scale on oaks and maples? For scale insect questions, I'm going to have you check with PJ on that. Okay. I know enough to be dangerous on those sorts <laughs> of things, so I'd rather not comment. Okay. Brian, he did comment on that a little bit yesterday, and there are a number of different oil applications that can be made, but he said that if you can time pretty much any labeled insecticide to the time that the crawlers are emerging from the scale, that that's really one of the best ways to control them. But I know in the past, Phil had talked about doing multiple oil sprays throughout the year for that suffocation effect on the scale insect. But I'm not sure if the systemics work. So, yeah, that would be a good thing for PJ to... Do we have a fact sheet on that, Brian? We have a fact sheet on magnolia scale, so there is a fact sheet on that. But, again, the scales tend to vary from what I understand in terms of when the crawlers are active. Right. So if you're going to use the oils or those sorts of smothering treatments, my understanding is you need to make sure that you time those properly or else they just won't be that effective. Exactly. Okay. Thanks. Any final questions for me? I'm sorry, Brian. I was going to ask you this yesterday, and I forgot. Did you happen to go out and look at the zinnias yesterday and see the sporadic death in the beds? It looked like southern wilt, southern blight. Southern blight. I did not take a look at the beds, but my guess, knowing the history there at West Madison, was that probably white mold that's causing okay. the problem. I can take a look. We'll be out there again a week from Saturday for field day, and I will take yeah. a look. You know, I didn't see any kind of sporulation or anything, but it's just so weird looking. The plants, mature plants, completely dead in a very scattered kind of pattern throughout the beds. Yeah, my guess would be if we opened up the stems on those particular plants, we'd find sclerotia inside, and that would be what I would look for for that particular disease. And I know they've had a history of that on site. So I can check for Ralstonia as well, which is the southern blight pathogen. That also forms the sclerotia, but they're the ones that look a little bit like the osmocote pellets. Yeah, and that's what I was looking for because Jerry Nelson saw it first, and he said, Mm -hmm. do you think that's southern blight? And we poked around in there, and we didn't see any sclerotia at all. Yeah, and the white mold ones will be larger and black and look like mouse droppings or rat droppings, but oftentimes they will form inside the stems. You can see them oftentimes on the surface as well, 
but where I would double check on those plants would be the insides of the stems. Did they look yeah. very bleached in color? They did. Yeah, and that's kind of. fairly typical as well for that disease. When I see it on soybeans, I've seen it on tomatoes, I've seen yeah. it on zinnias and also petunias, and usually the visual symptom is that the stems are almost white. They're very bleached out. I don't know if they were that bleached out, but take a look at them when you were there. They'd probably be more amenable to you poking around and tearing their plants out than me doing that. Yeah, and they may be leaving it there just to show the symptoms. Well, and, you know, varietal differences. There were a couple of cultivars that didn't have it at all. Mm -hmm. And that may be because of resistance, but I'm probably thinking more likely because of differences of where the inoculum is. Okay. That's such a general rot pathogen that typically breeding for resistance can be a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Let me know what you find. Okay, I will. Okay, updates from other specialists that might have joined us. All right. Well, with that then, I'm hoping that Mark Renz, our speaker, is on from UW-Madison Department of Agronomy, who's going to be talking about weeds and invasive plants in Wisconsin. Yes, I am. Good morning, everyone. Glad to be here. I have a lot of resources that I've provided to you, and I'm just going to kind of go through these PowerPoint slides pretty quickly. A lot of it's really meant just for references, because I'm sure you guys get a lot of questions about particularly the NR40 rule and some of the other issues. So I'm going to go by really quickly through these slides, but if you do have questions, please interrupt. We are doing quite a bit of programming, and there'll be some opportunities to get some Further education in September, working with Team Hort, we have the urban forestry courses that are going to focus on invasives, and we'll touch on that briefly this fall as well. So I think starting off with this first picture, although probably wild parsnip dominates the roadside, crown vetch here is coming in a close second, so I thought this was a good picture to start things off on the invasive plant update. Going to the next slide, I'd like to remind people that we do have an invasive species rule called NR40 that was originally passed in 2009, and it's just been updated, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, but I like to remind people, a lot of people use the term invasive very liberally, and I think in Wisconsin and state law, there's a very specific definition for what an invasive species is, and it's basically a non-native species that's causing some type of harm or potential harm to Wisconsin. So, If anyone uses this term on many of our weedy native species, I like to always correct them. Aspen is a great example that we shouldn't call that invasive, we should just call that weedy. So I like to remind people of that distinction. These next slides are just going to give you some examples of what some of the impacts that these invasive species have had. What I like to remind people is the real goal of this rule is to prevent future impacts. We already have many impacts from invasives and we're trying to prevent some of these future ones from occurring. So if you go to the next slide, these are some examples of economic impacts, more kind of slated towards agriculture. Many of these plants are toxic and can kill or reduce the health of animals if they feed on them. Poison hemlock is probably the biggest one of concern. If you don't know what that plant is, just drive into Illinois and Indiana. It's all over the roadsides there. Many of these directly compete for resources in our forage systems. Canna thistle is a great example. But even in our forests, Buckthorn and honeysuckle invasions have been shown to slow down the regeneration of forests by up to 20 years. And you can think of that in a very dramatic economic sense to our forest industry, which is really important to Wisconsin. And the other issue in ag systems and even horticultural systems is there's a cost to manage these plants when they're in there. 
And I know Brian can attest to the fact, too, that there's direct costs and then there's indirect costs. A lot of the insects and diseases are closely related to many of these invasive plant species. And they overwinter there, and so there's this compounding or indirect effects of having these plants present. So these are all examples that are dollars coming out of our pockets to manage these because they're present. And there's a range of environmental costs that we struggle to put economic dollars on. And I've just kind of given some real big examples here. Up north, where we have a lot of spotted knapweed, it's been documented where we have more spotted knapweed, we have less grass, and we have reduced infiltration of water and increased runoff of water and sediment as a result where we have spotted knapweed infestation. So that's a really good example I like to utilize for an environmental impact. A lot of these brush species are changing the nutrient cycling in our forests, and I can talk about that if someone has questions. And then another great example is garlic mustard has been associated with reductions in mycorrhizal presence in our hardwood forests. And our hardwood forests, in order to regenerate, need those mycorrhizals, so there's concern that we're going to have an additional stress on the regeneration of those hardwood forests. So those are just a few real broad examples that you might want to utilize. Probably the one that gets the most traction, to be honest, is the human health impacts. And so this picture here is a picture of Japanese barberry. Yes, it's the same Japanese barberry that's planted in many of your yards and you see throughout everywhere, invading some of our forests. This is a forest in the Wisconsin Dells. I like to call this, for those of you in the southern part of Wisconsin, the next multiple rows because it's starting to pop up all over in our forests. And we don't know how bad it's going to get in all our forests, but in some of it, it's getting very dense, these populations. And what we do know from research out in the eastern U.S. is it creates a perfect habitat for ticks, and the ticks will further spread Lyme disease. So a real good reason that we won't want to have these invasives establishing and getting further spread into our landscape. And that's just one example. Wild parsnip is another example with the phytophotosensitivity that all of you are aware of. And then... Bush honeysuckle is actually uh, well associated with the increase of this new lone star tick and diseases associated with that, which there's a lot of research going on. It's a big problem in southern U.S., and it appears to be moving north to us, too. So more fun awaits us. Can I interrupt here? That bush honeysuckle you're talking about, is that the deer villa? No, the bush honeysuckle is a combination of any of the honeysuckle shrubs. The lanisseras. Yeah, the lanisseras all hybridized. So I just lump them all together into bush honeysuckle. Sorry, Sharon, for the confusion. So there's an amur honeysuckle, which has a really big leaf. And then there's moros, and there's macchiai, and they all hybridize. And so I just put them together because I think any of the names, unless it's amur honeysuckle, probably incorrect because it's just a combination of multiple species. But then I think we need to make a distinction between that and the northern bush honeysuckle and the southern bush honeysuckle, which are really deer villa species, not lanicera. Yep. So that bush honeysuckle. But Sharon, those are often called false honeysuckle, not just honeysuckle, because it's a separate species altogether. Right, but in the literature they often call them the common name of bush bush honeysuckle, all one word. Oh, Yes, I see that a lot on the nursery tags. That's what they call them, northern bush honeysuckle and southern bush honeysuckle. They're not doing themselves any favors. They should have stuck with the false honeysuckle name. (laughs) So, okay, just wanted to mention that. Thank you. Yeah, great point, Sharon. So, Lanicera is what we're talking about. That's the genus. Any other questions? Quick review, how are these species regulated? So, what uh, DNR does is they put them into categories. It's either prohibited 
restricted or split listed. Prohibited species, control is required. If the individual landowner doesn't control them, they have the right to go onto their property and control them and send them the bill. None of that has happened from a plant perspective yet, although they have issued some fines and issues on the aquatic side with some aquatic species. So that's prohibited, but I want to emphasize, as we'll talk about later, we don't have those prohibited species very widespread at all in Wisconsin, very few examples of them even persisting. Restricted species are a lot of the species you're familiar with. These are ones that are trying to prevent the additional spread, but eradication is just impossible. So these are the ones like wild parsnip, canna thistle, et cetera, spotted knapweed. While they encourage control, they don't require it. What is required is that you can't knowingly spread propagules to uninfested areas. So that could mean if a homeowner has a potted plant of spotted knapweed and they know it's a potted plant of spotted knapweed, they can't transport that and sell that to another individual knowingly. So that's the distinction between prohibited and restricted. Now, a few of these are split-listed because we really have a regional hotspots where we'll never eradicate it, but we're trying to keep it either in the southern part of the state or the northern part of the state, and I'll show you that in the next slide. So really, this slide 7 emphasizes the difference. Prohibited species are ones we don't have a lot of, or it's absent, like kudzu from Wisconsin, and we're trying to keep it that way, and so that's why it's highly regulated. While restricted species, we're really just trying to slow the spread is probably the best term to use. Any questions on those definitions before I continue? Okay. Just as May, they actually updated the invasive species rule and added a whole bunch of new species to this rule. It was a result of a long process. Unfortunately, political process happened very quickly, and because of a lot of the changes to DNR, they haven't really been able to promote that this new law is in place, and so they haven't been able to give a lot of press releases. I have made an attachment that gives the new list of invasive plants and gives a lot of details there that you could hand out or utilize as a resource. That's a really good resource. But the key points just to realize is they put about 40 new plants that are prohibited, 27 additional restricted plants, and changed two to be split-listed. And they're all on that attachment that I provided. This is both aquatic and terrestrial. They also made some changes to animals and insects and others that I'm not going to talk about. From the ornamental perspective, there's really four main species that they've listed, and there's a few others. One of them is Lactus, the Wisterias is the other one. Japanese barberry and Bernie bush are probably the two big ones. How are these supported ornamental plants being regulated? It's really down to the cultivar level. And so what I did is pulled the information exactly from the new rule information on how these are regulated. So for burning, which is, again, a restricted species, only the cultivar Nordine, the restricted, and all the others are excluded. There is some science behind it. Japanese barberry has many more species than restricted, as you read through here. Cultivars, and there's actually a few uh, species. How DNR got this list is this is published recently that knows how much seed production and ability of seeds. So as you notice, while we have, I don't know, about or so listed here, any of the newer varieties that have been rigorously tested are not on the list. So there still is the potential to buy Japanese barberry and sell it legally. None of the new varieties that are coming out are regulated at all because no research has shown how much or how little seed can provide seeds. 
So there's a lot of concern from the ornamental and the nursery industry on how they're going to be impacted. And so what they these regulations is they allowed an phase out period. I think it's the best way to discuss that. So any of these species that are listed before May 1st, they have a time to sell their stock before they become regulated. So for herbaceous and woody, they have three years, and for trees and shrubs, they have years. So even some of those listed Japanese bar varieties, they've got five years to sell them before they are going to start being regulated. So while this is going to happen, it's going to be a very slow implementation of these invasive ornamental plants. Hey, Mark, are other states doing something similar, especially our border states, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota? Minnesota's probably doing very similar things to us, although they're not as advanced. I know that they're assessing Japanese barberry, and they're looking at putting in some regulations, but I believe they have not done that yet, particularly with the ornamental plants. So they're very active in Minnesota. Illinois is starting to do some legislature towards this. They're tackling some of the low-hanging fruit right now, and so I would expect in probably the next two to five years. But if any of you guys have been listening to the news, you want to look at a state that's more dysfunctional than us politically, just look to the south, I think, is the best way I can sum that up because they're really having some huge issues. I know the colleague I work with there has been put on furlough for the last month because of their budget issues. So we're probably the leaders in this in Wisconsin, but I would expect that Minnesota is close behind and Illinois will increase just in the near term. Others aren't doing anything. I should say Michigan is also starting this process, and I would expect probably I'm a little less familiar how quickly they'll move forward, but it looks like they're going to be ramping things up here in the next couple of years too. Other questions? Okay. How many are regulated? Here's just a list of the overall number of regulated species. And the key issue here with the maps is you can see that the prohibited species we either have very few of them in the state or it's not even in the state. So we're trying to keep them out and eradicate those few populations we have, unlike restricted species, which are widespread, as you see that map of wild parsnip. These split-listed species are ones that we have very regionalized. So Kevin, up north, Eurasian marsh thistle is kind of secluded up there, but we've noticed over the years it's invading and moving south, and so they've drawn a line to try and keep it up in the north restricted it in the north, but made it prohibited in the south. So there's just a good visual for you guys for that. Hey, Mark. This is Jane up in Douglas County. Can you just really quick explain how vendors like nurseries get their information about these new rules? Do they have their own internal ways of talking? Yeah, this has been a big struggle, and BNR has been trying to reach out to them, and they do have various associations, and I think that BNR is doing a pretty good job of reaching out to the larger nurseries where they're really struggling is the smaller nurseries aren't even getting this information. So I think a real good thing to do if you work with some of those smaller nurseries or master gardeners are involved with them to make sure they've seen that list that I've provided as an attachment and just say, are you guys aware that this is happening? And then if not, we can put them in touch with the right people to get them educated on what that issue is. I would think that DATCAP would be a great way to do that because they do nursery inspections throughout growing season, and they do try and hit even the small nurseries as well as the big nurseries. Yeah, that's a great point, Sharon, and I know that they've been involved and at the table on all these discussions. I think that that would be something to bring up with some of the inspectors when they see them. I have not heard if they are mentioning it at these visits, but that's a great point. 
Would it be appropriate to just send this email that you sent for today's Whistline out to our, because I have a list of greenhouse nursery growers email list. It's not all of them, but it's most of them. Would it be appropriate to just add my own thoughts on this and say here's some resources, or is this too internal? No, I think if you want to send the PowerPoint, that would be fine. The key official document is that one-pager front and back from DNR. So if you wanted to send them that and just say, are you guys aware that this is out there? But I'm happy if you want to send the whole PowerPoint would be fine too. I think that'd be great because I'm sure, particularly in your area, Kevin, there's just not a lot of people that know about this. That's why they move north. (laughs) They want to get away from all that. Okay, thanks. Other questions or comments? Is the list you've given us a complete list or just the new ones added to it? It's the complete list, but it's only invasive plants. And so there's also aquatic species and insects and animals. But for the ornamental side, that's probably the list that they would want to see. Thank you. So if you go on to the next slide, slide 12, really the whole goal of this rule and a lot of our efforts is to prevent and minimize these impacts. And we're really trying to do this by detecting these new infestations that are spreading and trying to respond to them. We have national-level efforts, statewide efforts, and we're really trying to promote these local efforts. We have the Wisconsin First Detectors Network, and we're trying to get people locally to help report and then be involved because lots of work has shown that the local efforts tend to work the best. We can get some success nationally and statewide, but to make it long-term sustainable, I think the local efforts are the best. And this next slide, slide 13, is just an example of why early detection is important, even on a species like the Lanisteras, in this case, bush honeysuckles, amber honeysuckle, why early detection is important. There's been research in forests that show that after honeysuckle invasion into that forest, it takes about 10 years. And after 10 years, we start to see the seed bank of those herbaceous species in the understory start to decline of those native species. They're still there, but they start to decline. Whereas after 20 years of invasion, many of those native seeds have been totally lost from the seed bank, 100%. So we have limited time to actually reverse some of this. That's why we need to act relatively quickly. I think that's a really good example that came out of Ohio and I'm sure holds true for Wisconsin. So a lot of the work in my lab is really to help assist and provide resources to assist with identification and control. I've been working with a number of you on a range of species. We have lots of resources on our website. We have these fact sheets on ID and control, over 36 species. You can get them at the Learning Store or on the website. We also have a bunch of these really good YouTube videos that we've been working with NPM to promote on how to identify these. We just did a new one on crown vetch, so hopefully you guys have seen that one. And we have one in the works on garden valerian. That one is actually a big problem. Jane can attest to up north, and it appears to be spreading downwards to central Wisconsin. Other resources that we have is we have the Weed ID website, which I think most of you know about and utilize pretty well. And I know Master Gardeners use it widely, and it's getting a lot of good hits. So lots of resources out there. That's been my big charge since I came here is just to provide people with resources to help answer some of these questions. I do, again, want to emphasize and give kudos to Kim and others on the planning committee. We are going to be doing some trainings this fall. We do the urban forestry workshops, which is going to be a coordinated training across six locations through middle of September to August 2nd. 
We have a combination of DNR staff and myself and Tony Summers and Glenn Nice are going to be conducting both classroom and field demonstrations throughout the state, these six locations you can see here. The cost is going to range between 35 and 45 bucks per person, and it's really targeting municipality workers and really anyone with any interest in invasive species. We will be working in a forestry context, but I think anyone who's interested in this would really be good to attend. They're going to get a bunch of resources, over $20 worth of just educational material. We've got an iPod to donate the field guides for each individual and a lot of the other information. So I think it really should be a great event. If you want people to register, contact the local counties. And I don't know, Kim, if there's anything you'd like to say about this. Kim's been really the leader in helping us get us going here. I don't have anything to add. It's just for people who want to register, they do have to register directly with the office handling that particular workshop. There is no central place for all the registrations to go. Yeah, stay tuned. We'll be doing some additional releases. And I would, again, say any of your clientele that are interested in invasive species and you think could benefit from some training, I would encourage to send them the information to one of these courses. It's really open to anyone. It's going to be really at a basic level, but we're going to cover a lot of stuff. So anyone that's working with invasive plants or isn't even aware that they have invasive plants, I think, from both of those levels would benefit from this training. And I also have to thank Mark and his crew for these workshops. They have done a wonderful job putting it together and have also put in a lot of work on this. Great. So stay tuned for that. We'll be doing a bunch of stuff. We're going to be on Larry Mueller talking about invasives like that Monday before these start. So we'll be plugging it really heavily there. So who knows? We might have to turn people away, which I think would be a good thing. So hopefully we'll get a good turnout. Are these workshops connected with the early detectors or included with that? Yeah, so WISTIN, Wisconsin's first detectors network, it is loosely coordinated. We're essentially inviting WISTIN participants to attend. I think these last few slides, I'm just going to kind of overview. There's some ideas on how we can get people out there helping. I think probably the easiest thing is just to get people out there looking for these invasive plants, particularly some of these new ones, and reporting them to us so we can know that they're there. That's the limiting factor in most times is we don't even know they're there until we have 10 acres of it, and it's really tough to manage. So we're trying to correct that. And so that's what we've done is we've created a lot of tools to help with reporting. If you look at slide 17, a lot of ways on how to report. You can simply contact me. DNR is welcome to take that as well as many of the county agents. We developed a lot of resources to make it easy for them to self-report. We've got this Gledden website, which is really easy to submit an observation. And we have this mobile app that's good for both Apple and Android iPads, as well as cell phones and everything else, so smartphones. And it's really great because you can simply pull up that app, take a picture of what you think you see, submit it, and that image then gets transferred to us. We actually can view that image and verify it right on the spot, and then it automatically gets incorporated into our database. Has anyone made an observation with the app? I think, Jane, you've tried, right? Yeah, I'm just behind, but I've got a master gardener here that's going to put it on her phone, and we'll start sending them to you. We actually have some good training videos on how to use it, too, through the First Detectors Network. So if you have anyone that has any interest, we'd be happy to talk to them or send them the link to that. It's in this email as we continue to go down. 
I won't bore you with the details of how to do it on the website. It's pretty easy to do. It's just a couple clicks of the button. You can get to an interactive map where you can zoom in and put a pin on there, and it auto-fills where the GPS location is. But the app is probably the easiest way if you do have a smartphone. I like to say that you can make an observation in less than a minute. It'll take you more time to find your phone and unlock it than it can to actually take that once you're trained how to do it. And it's great. We actually got a report earlier this week that I've been dealing with PJ of a high-concern insect. And it turns out it's a false report, but it's a real great way to quickly get that report, assess it. I was able to pass that image to several experts, and we discussed it and made a decision. So it really is a neat way to utilize that. For those advanced users, you can actually even do a point or a polygon, which is kind of neat too, so that's an option as well. And if you want to get a video tutorial on how to utilize this, here's the link I provided on slide 23. It's a pretty short video. It tells you how to download the app, how to register, and how to even submit an observation. So it's really a good hands-on way to get on and easy to send to a volunteer. I like to emphasize that we try our best to verify each report that comes in. I will admit, if Sharon gives me a documentation of garlic mustard in Milwaukee County, I'm probably going to take Sharon's word for it that it's there, and we're not going to go and make a particular visit. It's really those new ones where we don't know a lot of those locations that we try to verify, or if it's an unknown person that we're not sure of what their qualifications are. I do warn people that we share all this information with the public, so if there is some concern about keeping that location private, then it probably shouldn't be reported. The big joke I use is to report your neighbor, don't report yourself, then you're in the clear. And it really helps us with some of the research we're doing to update and predict some of the spread of these species. So I think that invasive plants are important. As I said, they can impact agriculture and I would say citizens of Wisconsin. Our goal is to educate people about what this rule is, how they can help through prevention and early detection and getting involved. And one really easy aspect is to report new infestations when they come there. I know I went through a lot of information. A lot of this is really available for just resources for you guys if you guys need to use it in some of your other outreach and education events. But if there's any other questions with the time we have left, I'd love to answer them. Okay, Mark, just another comment related to this. There's these cooperative weed management areas and organizations that are popping up we just had another one formed up here, the St. Croix Red Cedar, CWMA, and I'm assuming you are also interfacing with those folks there. Typically, some of our other agency people that are involved with that, I personally have not been very involved, but I know they're out there, and they're another resource that I'm assuming is there for us to tap into. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Kevin. So what's happening is these CWMAs, is, uh, Cooperative Weed Management Areas, many of them are now calling themselves CISMAs, Cooperative Invasive Species Management Areas, so two terminologies, but there are groups of agency staff and other partners that all are concerned about invasive species and weeds, and they come together and share resources to try and conduct management. And so there's been some really good examples. In the southeast section, we have CWIS, which has actually received funding through GLRI and other partners to go out on the grounds and control some invasive plants on roadsides. Others have 
been really good in their area of mapping and up in the northern part of Wisconsin, Northwoods and some of these others have been really good. They go out on the ground and actually are controlling individual populations, even on sometimes private property. So these CWMAs or CISMAs are really good at sharing resources. We'll get Department of Transportation, National Park Service, and other groups. One might say, well, I don't have any herbicide, but we have a crew that could help spray if we needed to go out and spray. And the other group says, well, I don't have a crew, but I have some herbicide you could use. And the third group says, well, I can print up the flyers and let people know. So it's just a way to share resources. They're good local individuals that I think are really critical to making sure we can see a difference. So if you guys are interested in that, I would definitely get involved with one of those local CWMAs or at least recognize, as Kevin said, that they're a great resource and the key is to kind of keep them in the loop with things that are moving forward. I hate to hog the line here, but one more comment. I sat in on a public hearing. It wasn't a very big group, but one of the goals was to control and eradicate. And I just made a comment, in nature, how can we eradicate really anything? If it's a really slow-moving species like a tree, you can identify it and eradicate it from a certain area. But just a point of clarification on some of those terms, because I always like to use manage and control rather than control and eradicate. I know eradicate is our end goal, but realistically, I think we're fooling ourselves. Yeah, and I think that the key, Kevin, is what's your definition of eradicate? Is it eliminating it from this one square acre spot? Is it eliminating it from the township? Is it eliminating it from the county, or is it eliminating it from the state? And as you increase your acreage, it becomes much more difficult to do. But we do have instances where we have eradicated species from states and nationally when we can identify that point early on in the process where that species comes in and nip it in the bud. But it can be challenging. What I like to do is ask people who use the term eradicate to define it and put a geographic range on it. So in your case, Kevin, you guys don't have a lot of, or maybe you don't have any garden valerian in your county yet, but it's coming, right? And so are you guys going to choose to eradicate it because it's everywhere to the north of you, or are you going to choose to manage it and let it invade some of those areas or not? And so I think it's just discussing what the term is in a geographic context is the key. You're absolutely right. That makes sense. I think we just need to have that common terminology and define it like you said. But it is a challenge. Eradication is in 99.9% of the time not a one-time process. It's going to location, conducting management, and then revisiting that site multiple times and trying to eliminate those populations. And Mark, I'd also like to mention that when we talk about this issue and we mention some of the very common landscaping plants that are now regulated, and people ask, do I really have to get rid of all of my Japanese barberries? Or in my case, I have a Nordine spring bush, so I guess I'm going home and cutting it down. Well, no, but Sharon, you don't, because it's restricted. So the key point is, it can be on your property, but you can't knowingly take seed of that and right. transport it off-site. Right, but you also can't control its being spread by natural mechanisms, and so environmentally the right thing to do would be to remove the plants, correct? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, the reality is, and you guys all know this, burning bush and Japanese barberry are spread far and wide. You can go up to the North Woods at the National Park Service headquarters and see burning bush and Japanese barberry planted at some of those headquarters there. So the damage, I would argue, is already done with many of those. We're just trying to limit or slow that spread is kind of the analogy I use. 
Okay. So while it's the right thing to do, is that going to stop these plants from spreading? No. The cat's already out of the bag, as I like to say. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, but you know, I was trying to do two things. One, they're trying to slow the spread by limiting further sale of these species. But two, they're trying to set a precedent so that when new species that they're concerned about come in, they have a process that these have gone through that industry is comfortable with that they can regulate in the future. But I understand it's not an easy conversation to have with people who really like their burning bush and their Japanese barberry. And another one is purple loosestrife. People will have it in their gardens. Mm-hmm. And that's one that they say, well, I haven't seen it spread on my property. Yeah, and so I think it's been a good example on many roadsides. In the last couple of years, it's been a lot more common. And so it's always nice if you can point that, yeah, but look, if you go down the road there, it's in the ditch right there. That could have come from your property. You have that example. That's how you can educate them. Yeah. We have a courtyard here that is totally isolated. You can't get into it except through our building or through the opening in the courtyard. And we had Crown Vets come into it, and it has totally taken over the entire courtyard, and it's coming from the highways, spread by birds. So it's a good example, too. Oh, that's a great example. I'd love to see a picture of it. It's probably past flowering, but maybe next year. Yeah, we also chopped it down. I'm getting ready to round it up today. Oh, good. Be back next year, though, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think we have time for maybe one question, and then we do need to wrap up. So if you have a burning question for Mark, now is the time to ask. All right. Hearing none, do we have any announcements? I'd just like to make a plug for the Urban Hort Field Day at West Madison on August 15th. That runs from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And I'll make a plug for Master Gardener Volunteers, their display at the State Fair, if anybody's going to be attending on a day other than the UW Extension Day. I hope we get a lot of people to. But they're in the DNR Natural Resources Park, as they call it now, and it's never looked better. Go say hi. And those in the Northwest, our annual Twilight Garden Tour at the Spooner Egg Research Station is Tuesday, August 18th, 4 p.m. to dusk. The Master Gardeners, Douglas Kanye, are going to be at the Enbridge Health Fair on the 19th, and that's open to friends and family of Enbridge. That will be over 500 people. Okay, any other announcements? All right, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Next week, we're going to have Scott Royce hosting from Marinette County. And our guest speaker is supposed to be Brian Smith from UW River Falls, UW Extension, talking about novelty fruits. And that will conclude our Wisconsin horticulture update for today. Thanks for joining.